Welcome to the Selfie Love podcast, talking all things media, mental health and mindset. For information and resources on any sensitive topics covered, please visit selfielovecampaign.com. Today we're joined by the one and only Julie Boyce, my amazing mum. How are you doing? I'm really good, thank you, Megan. Tell us a bit about yourself. I am 54 years old. I have a daughter, Megan, and a son, Cameron. I live most of my time in France, um, in the Loire Valley, but enjoy coming back to the UK to see Cameron and Megan um, in between times. And how's the past, let's say, two years been, realistically, with COVID and things for you personally? The beginning, uh, the first month or so, the novelty factor was made it fine. And then after that, I found it very difficult not to have control of how long it would be between seeing people that I hold dear. So then I did find it difficult for a while. And then like, it became a new norm, so life settled down. And then the hardest bit was probably the very beginning of this year when I didn't see Simon for 14 weeks and Cameron and Megan for even longer than that. That was very tough. So is that the first time where you've found the whole side of like not having control over something difficult or is that something that you monitor closely day by day or is that something that fairly new in the pandemic? I think I have a tendency to like control but I don't find the need to control other people. I like to have control of my future and that was the element I found most difficult during pandemic process but also previous to that I have been aware that if things have not been going my way and I have no control over them not going my way I do find that difficult. Uh, An example of that is probably when I've been in a job I haven't enjoyed and the process of trying to become accustomed to the way other people want things done or timescales etc were always a challenge but that's only with hindsight I'm aware of that. Is that, do you think, because people talk about mental health and well-being more these days, that you're able to say, well, in hindsight, that's something? Or do you think that's just the benefit of hindsight in general that can give you that perspective? I think it's both. People definitely talk about mental health along with physical and clinical health now much more readily. Some people talk about it with much more confidence and freedom than others. But I think it would be very strange for people not to be aware that there is a, a mental health pandemic going on as well. And that certainly wasn't something I was aware of as I grew up. Certainly not. Um, the phrase that used to be used for people who were having um, challenges with their mental health, that phrase in itself wasn't used. People used to refer to people having a nervous breakdown. And I think that is probably when a clinical depression reaches a peak and people have a, an episode of emotional outburst. And that was what was called an emotion, uh, um, a nervous breakdown was the key phrase. I don't ever remember my mum having any mental health issues. But when I was first prescribed antidepressants for postnatal depression, she shared with me that she had also had periods of depression in her life. But I don't ever remember being aware of it at the time or even reflecting on it with hindsight and wondering what the matter was. She obviously didn't display anything that as a child concerned me at the same time though I can say that I never really saw signs of depression in you when I was younger 
I never really was aware of it. Obviously, we talk more openly about these things now. I think as a child, you never, you always see the best sides of like your parents anyway, because I guess that's a mum and dad thing. I think also there are very many people who are smiling depressives, mm. and I know I am one. The easiest response to the question, how are you, is I'm fine. The most difficult response is I'm really struggling at the moment and I'm finding life hard. So I think we all paint paint a, a smile on our faces and be very British about it and get on with things. Even though we know internally we don't feel good, we don't feel great, we feel rubbish, or we feel absolutely diabolical. There are multiple grades of not feeling great, just as there are multiple grades of being content, happy, delirious, ecstatic. It's interesting that you said it being a British thing, because I think it's definitely more normal, I suppose, more normalised to um, be aware of your well-being in your mind, typically in America, because people have therapists, like, you know, they have an optician, a dentist, like, it's never really that much of a shock from the outside looking in as a, as a, as a Brit. It seems very commonplace to have a therapist in America versus the UK, where we're much more taboo about sensitive topics like that. I think the British have historically been taboo about all health issues, not just mental health issues. I guess a probably quite a broad question, answer it however you wish. What does health and well-being mean to you? That's a very broad question. If somebody said to me, how is my health and well-being? I would probably refer to my physical health first and perhaps my mental health in with that and then my well-being would encompass everything. I read something the other day where we won't consider mental health at the same level as physical health until we just start talking about health mm -hmm. and it's just mental or physical. Yeah. And I think that's a really good point because I think as much as we're, we're helping the stigma move along and we're trying to break it and talk about these things, I still think there's such a lack stigma. of it. There's still such a lack of education. I, I, I think people have to go and self-educate still rather than they're actually educated in school, for example, which is a system that's made to prepare you for life. And the sooner you're prepared, the sooner you recognise the symptoms in yourself or in others and the sooner people can access treatment and support, which means it doesn't necessarily become a lifelong problem. How did you self-educate then, in that sense? Because by the sounds of it, as a young person, you weren't very aware of mental health and the importance of it. I had always had a tendency for big highs and lows. Um, I think that is part of who I am. And with hindsight, I think that was that was always present. Um, my first time of being diagnosed with something that was labelled depression was postnatal depression after I had Cameron. A very, very clever uh, district nurse said to me she was concerned um, and would I mind doing a questionnaire? And again, with hindsight, I can see what she was seeing. She was seeing me put wear a really really good mask but deep down struggling with finding the energy to be positive every day um, and she had spotted that because of her experience and her job was to look out for these things and when she I remember really clearly sat opposite her her talking to me about it 
and the relief of having a reason for feeling as lousy as I did. I just thought I was being miserable. But of course, I wasn't miserable. I had an absolutely darling baby boy who I was desperate to have and loved dearly and he was adorable. I had nothing to be worried about or miserable about. And yet there I was with this black cloud chasing me around. And it was an enormous relief to be told, oh, yes, you're, you're definitely having a bit of a clinical depression going on. Let's treat it. Let's get rid of it. And that was the first instance I took antidepressants. So I took, took it upon myself to work out what it was, what the symptoms were, how it's best treated. And it's been part of my life ever since, on and off. I haven't always had to take medication for it, but I have now been on antidepressants for hmm, probably something like 15 years. And I'm on a low dose, a maintenance dose. I, I did increase them slightly during the pandemic, very briefly, because I discovered it was more anxiety that was bothering me than depression. And so I medicated the anxiety and left the depressive treatment as it was before. And it was fine. There's that word fine. We use it very easily. Yeah, probably a good segue. Obviously, I've had bouts of depression as well. What has it been like looking, not after me, but I guess nurturing me as a mum? You had quite an early episode of depression which I watched from the outside not being fully aware of what was going on inside because you weren't sharing I watched very very concerned for a long time that you were not happy what age was this I'm thinking probably about 12 and that was the first time I I watched you and and it upset me to see how unhappy you were as a person there wasn't one particular thing that was making you unhappy. You were unhappy as a person. Your being was unhappy. Uh, I was very hard um, because you can't do anything about it. But I did know I couldn't fix it. Yeah. Which helped hugely. I knew it wasn't possible for me to fix and that you would need some support, some professional support to, to help you along the way. And you've always been very open about it since. So it's easier now. And I think once you've had a diagnosis, diagnosis of depression you have to accept that it's something you live with forever it's part of your chemical makeup and sometimes you don't suffer with it it's just there as part of your life sometimes the symptoms aren't present but that doesn't mean you're cured that means that you're not suffering at the moment that's why I stay on a low dose of antidepressants I've mentioned several times to doctors about maybe it's time to come off them and they say but why you're balanced you're well, why change it? So yeah. I stay with them. And actually, the pandemic would have been an awful lot worse had I not been on any medication, because I don't think I would have noticed my decline. I think it's very easy to tumbleweed along into a low state, gathering lots of burdens along the way. What kind of advice, I suppose, would you let another mother know about, or a dad, I suppose, if they've got a child that they're worried about their mental health and they don't quite know what to do, how to help, how to manage the situation. Because, I mean, it's obviously I was the one with the depression, but it must be quite hard from a mum-dad point of view with that nurturing instinct of not knowing how to help. It is difficult because everybody's symptoms are different and everybody displays it in a different way. The things I have noticed when I have seen depression in other people, 
are the negative slant on everything. People will, yes, but, or never see the good, always see the bad. There is an air of being troubled around people who are becoming depressed. There is an air around them of discontent and anxiety. Anxiety is definitely part of it, but it can also be a separate issue. With you, the things I noticed was your relationship with food. You were either eating or not eating. There was there was little balance. Really? Yes. I yeah. never knew that. Yeah. You definitely had different different appetite. Your, your appetite control was different. You flag up to me when you're excessively tired over a number of days, weeks. Mm. If when I ask how you are, your initial response is I'm tired. That normally means your mood is really low. Yeah. And I think that's the same with many people because the way you describe that inability to lift yourself and be positive and find enthusiasm is so similar to when you're tired. And actually, you might not be tired, but you can't find the energy you need for the enthusiasm. Fuel running life. Yeah, but it's a very particular type of fuel. It's not the type of fuel that calories help. But then I guess that is why we put food in, because we think putting food in is going to make us that's feel why better. I'm, that's why I'm surprised that my appetite was affected. Yeah. Because yeah. from I remember I used to compensate my mood with food, which is why I was quite a chubby teenager. I think I you were genetically destined to be a, a chubby teenager. But yes, you also weren't always very happy so I remember you're one... an emotional eater I'm an emotional <laughs> eater I, I eat with every emotion you know what it was there was one evening and I must have been around 12 and I think you'd gone out to something going to see family friends or something I think Cameron was out and I was just sat in quite content to be fair in my own company because I didn't want to be around anyone else but I thought I'd put on Titanic of all films that's depressing in itself mm. and I ate a whole bar of like the massive milker you get at like airports mm. I could not do that now even if I tried no but like, not even from a psychological point of view but just like I don't think I think I would feel sick mm. but I think that's that proves how my tolerance for like binging mm. was there which is that was that's when like I was like okay mate, this is where I need to rein it in a bit <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I was a very similar age when I used to binge on chocolate, but it, it it was it was for the endorphin rush. It was for the sugar rush. And I now know that I can get that same rush from so many different things, some good, some bad. It comes in so many different forms, but it is a really powerful chemical. And if you if you if you haven't become aware of what you do to, to kickstart your or to boost your endorphins, then it probably means your mood is quite balanced all the time. I think if people don't realise they exercise for the endorphin kick, it probably means they've got a very balanced mental chemical balance. Yeah, because I think it came at a nice time. Well, it didn't come at a nice time. I think you and Dad both encouraged me to try and do a bit more exercise, not just for my, my well-being physically, but also mentally. Mm. And I did karate for, what, four years? But that, years? that was recommended to us, but from somebody who... Yeah. We had discussed the fact that you were... A young teenager and struggling with your mental health yeah and they recommended it and it was really good and it got me really physically fit I think I think that's when I start to be like okay well that's something that exercise can do for me because I've always learned exercise as being something that oh I have to feel gross I have to feel sweaty um mm. it's always been an effort to go and do it because I never found something I liked whereas now I like going to the gym and I say over Christmas even I'm, I was like okay I'm itching to go back and do my first session and I'll go on Christmas Eve so that means 
like I can have a few days off and things like that and it's a weird relationship now because even the language then of being like if I have to if I have to do a workout to let myself have a few days off I also have to be careful of am I doing it for the right reasons Mm. is it a control thing is it an obsession but at the same time it's almost like an addiction because you get an endorphin rush from it at the end of the day just like how some people get addictions to alcohol food cigarettes drugs whatever that is at the end of the day it gives you that rush and I think to be honest now I have such a rhythm of exercising I do crave that endorphin here and you're another person that likes an element of control yeah absolutely (laughs) and I wouldn't say you have an addictive personality but it wouldn't be surprising if you didn't develop an addictive personality given who your parents are because both dad and I have addictive personalities you have learned that you don't have to link body image with how exercising makes you feel yeah body image improved figure or weight loss or body tone is the byproduct of you going to the gym because going to the gym makes you feel good yeah for me it's such a mindfulness thing though Mm. it's the fact that I can finally make time for myself without any distractions Mm. I can go there I can put my music in anything that's pissed me off that day I can think about and I'm doing it I'm taking it all out on the right thing very focused on your own thoughts yeah and that's what it's about or on the flip side it's about thinking about nothing and it's me listening to a podcast while I'm on the treadmill or it's listening to music and just really enjoying the beat of it and things I'm exactly the same it's one or one or the other I walk to be in my own headspace and I swim to be in my own headspace I guess moving from talking about mental health, talking more about physical health and how they can be so closely linked, let's speak about fibromyalgia. Because it's interesting that in case anyone listening that doesn't fully understand it, because I'm still learning about it myself, fibromyalgia is something that both of us have. The main symptom is having chronic pain, mainly caused by the brain sending like faulty pain signals to the body there doesn't necessarily need to be an injury there for it to be reacting to you can still get a pain in that area despite that or it can be an exacerbated response to an injury and it can be hyper aggravated yeah and lovely enough that that just isn't all but you can get you know other symptoms like ibs um brain fog um, fatigue. Um, I would say t- tiredness is up there with the physical pain. Yeah. It, because they're so inextricably linked. If you're tired, you can't fight pain. And if you're in pain, you can't rest because the pain prevents the rest. <laughs> yep. So those two are inextricably linked. And if you go a long period of time without healthy sleep and living with and managing and trying to ignore pain, it eats away at the healthy chemicals in your brain, which causes the anxiety and depression. So those, as well as the brain fog, if you can't sleep, you're not going to think clearly. All of those things are linked. And then there's all these other layers of things from as minor as dry mouth. I suffer with that. I don't suffer with dry eyes. Apparently that's the thing. Um, <laughs> I think I went through a list of 20 symptoms and I think I only had two that I didn't suffer with. Yeah. In every other respect, I have elements of several other things. That in I, women, I just try not to worry about it. Yeah, in women, 
period pain and just bleeding in general tends to be a lot worse when you have fibromyalgia what things have you learned like perspective like perspective wise about your well-being from having fibromyalgia because I learned a lot from it the experience of having to look after myself a bit better the experience of being diagnosed was just an enormous relief because I had been getting up out of chairs and going, oh, oh, oh. it sounded like a 90-year-old for over 20 years. Um, <laughs> and that's starting when, uh, just to highlight that you shouldn't be sounding like that, because I had a similar thing that I all of a sudden was realising, why am I finding it such effort to get out of bed physically, yes. out of a chair, and I'm only 19 at because the time? Because stiffness after rest is one of the major symptoms of fibromyalgia. Yeah. Your joints stiffen, so... If you can imagine a person without fibromyalgia might have a very, very stiff joint after an injury or or after excessive exercise. The whole of a fibromyalgic sufferer can feel stiff and therefore reluctant to move, which is why we all look so decrepit when we try and get out of bed or stand up. When I walk down in the stairs in the mornings, it's like an old lady. (laughs) Once I've got moving, I'm fine. But that first time down the stairs is really painful because... All of my joints are stiff. Um, Interestingly, that was another thing that I then was aware of when I lived at uni and Thea lived beneath me. And she always said, you're so heavy footed in the mornings, but you're really not the rest of the day. I never hear you. Hurt. And it's and then I was like, oh, so that must be where like my ankles are really stiff. Because I've always noticed that, but never really thought twice about mm. it. And then I put two and two together. Mm. If I sit for any period of time in one position, I get up and I find it difficult to move for a while. I don't even think about it anymore. But I've lived with it for so long, it's just my norm. Mm. Um, And that's okay. But being diagnosed gives you permission for it to be your norm and you're not making a fuss about nothing. There is a long list of things, which is why it's a syndrome, not a disease. It It is a whole collection of symptoms which, when you suffer a reasonable proportion of those symptoms you are diagnosed as suffering from the syndrome um there's still so much to learn about it but i think most doctors now are at least aware of what it is even if they don't appreciate how it's best managed yeah and how a positive patient can manage it really really well just by being positive i don't ever let it stop me doing anything what normally happens is I do too much, then I suffer for it, and then I have to say, but it's okay, I'm allowed to have a day off and a bit of look after me day to recover. That was the key thing I had to learn, it was pacing myself and learning that what's frustrating, perhaps more so for me because I'm younger, was that I have to think about what would be too much. For example, some people can take on so many things when they're young and they can build up this great resiliency, which is fabulous. But I know that if I overwork myself, as soon as I stop that... You crash. I crash. I'm in pain for days. I feel sick with how, how much pain I'm in. And I'm to dose myself up on all these drugs to get me through just a day of resting. It's not even a day of doing something. It's just a day of resting. And it was hard to accept that this is something I'm going to have to learn to yeah. balance. And you will also learn which pains to ignore, which pains just to switch off. Yeah. Because they're not real. A lot of them are not genuine. They're not as a result of injury or um, some physical problem. They're a message that your brain receives. And if you acknowledge it, it hurts. I always 
refer to pain as a noise and I just refuse to listen to some of it. There is a constant white noise in my life, a level of pain that is similar to white noise that is used to calm the mentally disturbed or young babies or I have a white noise that is pain yeah. and I refuse to listen to it. And if somebody says to me, where do you hurt now? I have to turn the volume up to that and say, oh, well, actually, at the moment, my left buttock is burning with pain and my shin is hurting. But I'm not going to listen to those if they're not real pains. Yeah, it's, de- it's definitely taught me and I think you where our boundaries are. Mm-hmm. And boundaries are something that I, think, I really struggle with in general. I think you're better at being aware of when your boundary is approaching than I am. <laughs> I will bulldoze through mine and then suffer really badly afterwards. But more often than not, because I'm doing something I really enjoy doing and I refuse to let the fibro stop me. It's a weird balance, isn't it? it? To not let it stop you, but then have to look after yourself. Yeah. And I'm lucky enough that I don't have a job that I have to perform for. So if I overdo things for a week and then need three days to recover, I can actually take three days to recover. That's fine. Aside from fibromyalgia, let's talk about your breast cancer. Mm -hmm. What kind of new perspectives and learnings you took from that? Because that was a very life-changing experience for everyone around you, let alone you. I, I had the inevitable reaction initially of fear and shock. And, and not that I I never actually thought I was going to die, but I did think my happy life was going to be disturbed for a long time. And again, that the fear of loss of control of not knowing what was going to happen it disturbed my my time ahead and I I like to know what's happening with my time ahead that said once I'd had the surgery and and being told that I didn't need anything other than some hormonal treatment for five years it became a really positive thing that had happened to me because it made me look at what's important in life it made me look at who is important to me, what is important in my day-to-day life, how I want to spend time. Um, And it it highlighted to me what isn't important and what I could happily afford to let go of. What kind of things were they then, the things that you realised were more important than things that you realised were less important? Well, I think, obviously, family, close family became important. And you do discover who your friends are because they are the people who are devastated with you, but also are your strength with you. Um, And the messages I had from people saying, you're such a positive person, you're dealing with this in such a positive way, that is only going to help. I had a a long stream of messages of of really strong admiration. So it's really weird to describe yourself in that way, but it was people admired the way I had, taken on the diagnosis and dealt with it in the short term and that was a real boost to my confidence and gave me gave me the power I think to choose what I wanted to do how I wanted to spend my days and it coincided with us buying the house in France and I realized that yes my my duty the part of my brain that was my duty said I should stay in the UK because you weren't yet at uni, Cameron was still fairly new to work, my parents were starting to need me. But actually, if I didn't stop and decide what I wanted to do, I may never have the chance. Yeah. So I did decide to be selfish and 
it was something I've never done before. I'd never put me first before. And I was allowed to. I gave myself permission to. Other people gave me permission to. And it was appropriate at the time to just be selfish and, and do what I wanted and map out the life I wanted. Of course, now, coming up for well, it's four and a half years, no, just over four years ago, yeah. I'm well. It doesn't mean I don't still have panics. If I feel anything slightly strange in the other breast, I still have that, oh, no, not again moment. But I'm fitter and healthier than I was when I was diagnosed with breast cancer. And I'm happier. Yeah. I'm more in control of the important things. I think before that, I had a little bit of an unhealthy relationship with alcohol. I don't think I was an alcoholic by any means. But I think I used alcohol as a crutch way more than I should have been doing. Mm -hmm. I certainly don't now. I drink far less. And that's because I'm, I don't need the crutch, I guess. I've learned to look after my diet more. I've learned to look after my heart health more. I suppose it's given you a refocus on, I guess, the fundamentals of people existing, really, and not, and not just thinking about the yeah. next day. It's about, like, where am I at? I mean, anybody can get breast cancer. Anybody can. But there is a larger proportion of women who are overweight, who have smoked, who have taken the contraceptive pill for a long time and who drink too much. Predominantly, all of those things put you at risk yeah. more than not abusing alcohol, not smoking, taking regular exercise and looking after your diet. And I was at my heaviest, my fattest and my unfittest when I was diagnosed. And that's a short, sharp shock. And also being told that I was too fat to have a reconstruction. Yeah. Uh, I found actually, I found that more devastating than anything because yeah. I thought I was going to be disfigured. I thought having my breast cut off was going to disfigure me and I thought that was going to change my inner being. I thought I would never be the same person again. And lo and behold, here I am. I'm not the same person, but I think I'm a better person. I think I'm a happier person the other side of it I still haven't had the reconstruction well it's been started but it's not finished and it <laughs> cheers bothers... COVID <laughs> cheers COVID yeah uh, but it bothers me less and less um it's very much something I want to do for me and largely because wearing a prosthetic boob is not pleasant when you're a menopausal woman and you're hot flushing every five minutes and live in a country that has beautiful hot summers wearing a prosthetic tit is not nice but you'd rather that... I would rather that than not be here. It's a small price to pay. Has that, your, like, pattern of thinking changed then since then? Because by the sounds of it, you've learnt to be... Not that you weren't before, but, like, things to do with, like, mindfulness, gratitude, I suppose, zooming out and being like, OK, but what's the bigger picture? I'm much that more self-aware. Yeah. I'm much more self-aware. I'm more self-aware in every aspect of life. I'm more self-aware about what I say to people, how I say it, um, how I manage things, how I manage relationships. Um, it has just made me more self-aware. It made me look inwards and check myself and make some changes so that my priorities were in the right order. 
So it was it was a it was a positive experience. I would never ever say it was anything but a positive experience for me. I was very very lucky. Yeah, I was lucky a that it affected such a short part of my life, um, but b that it had such a big impact in a good way. Mm. To close this episode, what does happy mean to you? Now this is interesting because. I often used to ask dad, are you happy? And he'd say, I'm content. And to me, content is much easier to describe because content is you are um, comfortable with where things are at and everything is okay or fine. Happy, I would put one step up from being content. If you're happy, you have more joy in your life rather than more contentment. You are more than content. Things are better than fine. So happy for me are the days when my headspace is good, my physical state is good, my energy levels are up, my enthusiasm is up. And uh, strangely, I've come, a word popped into my head that we haven't mentioned at all, I'm happy when I'm being creative and I have time to be creative when everything else, when all the, all our moons are in alignment, when everything else works, when my body works, when my headspace works, when I haven't got any time pressures on me, I'm at my most creative. And when I'm at my most creative, I'm at my happiest. I didn't know I was going to say that. (laughs) (laughs) That's just taught me that. It's interesting because I think people chase happy. People always think they're going to be happier if they get a promotion. Mm. People will be happier if they get a degree. People will be happier if they get this house, this car. We dep- we're very much taught by society that happy is something we have to chase. That happy can be found in what you have already. And it's all about your perspective, which is why things like mindfulness and gratitude are so important. And we'll talk about it more in a different episode I read something it may well have been this morning that said the differences between being successful and being and having satisfaction are that other people decide whether you're successful you yourself decide if you are satisfied it's all about fulfillment isn't it Mm. that's why creativity Mm. is something that's so close to you with happiness because Mm. you get the most fulfillment out of doing Mm. that if you feel fulfilled with your life Mm. and you feel enriched with whatever you're living in at the moment Mm. then you're more likely to feel happy and you won't feel as lower down scale down contentment fine all right not bad There's a sliding scale for all the good bits and all the bad bits. Thank you for your time. You're very welcome. It was a pleasure. And I have learnt something. I have learnt that happiness and creativity go together in my world. There we go. I'm glad you got something out of it. But um, as always, thank you for anyone that's listening and for any topics covered that you feel you might need more support on um, or any more information, really, please visit selfielovecampaign.com and don't forget to follow us on Spotify and Instagram as well. Speak to you soon and again, thank you.